Well, welcome to another edition of the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. It is Wednesday. It's the final Wednesday. Well, it's the final day of August, but the final Wednesday of August. And you know what that means. It is Everyone Wednesday here on the Bottom Line Show. We will be giving away a special resource uh, later in the broadcast. Um, so get your dialing fingers ready, 800-227-5278. And everybody who calls in, whether it's for the uh, the giveaway for the book, I've got a special guest lined up, is going to talk about an Old Testament prophet that is very, very germane to what we're looking at in the world today. Um, but we've got one of her books to give away. And then also we're going to ask a, a question, just to kind of prime the pump here, about women in ministry and women in the pulpit in particular. Attitudes are changing all across the country. I'm not sure that it's necessarily a reinterpretation of Scripture per se. Scripture's been very clear, I believe, about the roles of men and women when it comes to ministry. And yet sometimes there are some, there's room for maneuvering within that uh, classification that can be subject to interpretation and maybe has been badly misinterpreted. You know, I mean, it's kind of like the issue of, um, when it comes to same-sex attraction, people in the LGBTQ community, people who have been, you know, maybe grew up in the church and then had questions about feelings they were having. And when they went to the church, the church's answer was, well, don't feel that way. And that's, that's not really a fair thing to say to people. I'm not suggesting we should condone homosexuality and the like, but I think we can do a better job of being more sympathetic, understanding, compassionate, and genuinely biblically kind. And the word the root word in uh, in the Greek for kindness literally means to encourage people to turn away from what they were doing that was wrong. That's a really long, you know, but if you show kindness to someone, oftentimes we're like, oh, I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. That's an act of kindness. Well, that's more of an act of compassion. True biblical kindness means you come alongside somebody and say, hey, you're walking the wrong way. Let me help you find the right way. And you do it in a way that has a certain measure of grace and empathy and that type of stuff. And, you know, we, we didn't always do that in the pro-life community. When, as soon as Roe versus Wade was passed, 22nd of January, 1973, the anti-abortion crowd went out there and said, it's a baby, stop killing babies. Ah! You know, and we literally, we had what we would now call pro-life activists, anti-abortion foes, you know, chaining themselves to buildings and blowing up. I mean, George Tiller, Tiller the Killer, as recently as was 2009, was actually killed by pro-life advocates. Now, this is a guy who went to church, was very active in his church, but was also a very prolific abortionist, you know, try to figure that one out. But it took us a good 15, 20 years in the pro-life community before we began to realize, hey, wait a minute, we're not speaking the same language as the pro-abortion side of the equation. You know, and once we did start speaking that language, then it's amazing how now Roe versus Wade has been overturned. It's becoming a state issue. Like all the pundits who were accurately predicting what would happen, what happened is you're seeing states taking this up as an issue. Kansas, which is a red conservative pro-life state, actually upheld uh, abortion rights in the state. And if you take a look at the uh, the numbers on that one, that's pretty easy to spot. I mean, what happened in Kansas was a whole onslaught, a whole flurry of new voters just all of a sudden showed up in Kansas right before the uh, midterms. Amazing. And 70% of these newly registered voters were women. Go figure. I, 
I, I, I had a sinking suspicion that something like this might happen. Kansas may have the same voting laws as Georgia. You know, in Georgia, you could just show up, register to vote, vote, and then leave the state. You don't ever have to live there, apparently. Those are Georgia's Georgia state voting rules. Kansas may have the same. And if that's the case, then don't think for a minute that Democrats slash progressive slash pro-abortion advocates didn't influence people to just fly to Topeka and, <laughs> and let's go ahead and all register to vote. And uh, as soon as we do, you know, we'll register, we'll vote. And then all of a sudden you have this overwhelming two thirds majority saying we want to uphold abortion rights in a conservative pro-life state that something smells a little fishy. Either ballot boxes were stuffed or a bunch of people just blew in, carpet bagged their vote and blew out again. It can happen. But the idea of women in the pulpit has been one that we've been kicking around in the culture for quite some time. And so uh, we're going to explore that a little bit uh, further detail today here on the Bottom Line Show. And everybody who calls in the program is going to win something, 800-227-5278. Now, we've got a situation happening here this weekend. Of course, it's Labor Day weekend coming up. And if you've got a long weekend, I encourage you to enjoy it, uh, wholeheartedly enjoy it. Uh, we've got some birthday celebrations in my family to celebrate. Uh, my sister and I get to celebrate this weekend. It's always kind of fun. Uh, my mom and dad wanted a boy and a girl two years apart, and they got a boy and a girl two years apart. The only thing they didn't count on was that there was a leap year in between when they were born. So we were literally 730 days apart, but one of the years had 366 days instead of 365. Uh, you know, hey, God wanted us each to have our own birthdays. Maybe you're going to be celebrating the end of summer. Of course, look at the temperatures. My goodness, it's just, it's pounding, staggering heat. I've been getting text messages from people I know all over the country, our friends at Dr. James Dobson's family talk. Are you guys okay? I heard it's going to be 115 out there. Are you going to melt? I said, well, no, we've got pretty good air conditioning. Thanks for asking. And most of us know you either hit the beach, but a lot of other people hit the beach, or you hit the thermostat and make sure that the air condition. I mean, when it's 115 outside, you can cool your house to 85. And the difference between outside and inside is going to feel pretty darn good. I mean, we don't have to run this at iceberg temperatures our son kevin lives in uh, san antonio and he's notorious for saying oh man it was so hot outside i had to run the air conditioning what he runs it 62 like, kevin come on man i mean <laughs> it's really 62 are you that hot i mean i i get it but people are going to be running the air they're going to be running the you know kind of cooling things off making sure the pool filter is going if you got a pool in your backyard and and i get that i mean it's, it's a holiday weekend it's hot you want to cool off you definitely want to do that well guess what's starting to happen all of a sudden the public utilities are showing up and saying oh by the way it's bad enough that in la county they're saying uh by the way starting on september 4th uh no one gets to water their lawn for two weeks because we don't have any water and now you've got like San Diego, temperature's going to be hitting 100. And so here come the California independent system operator that manages the electrical grid for about 80% of California has been issuing warnings all up and down the state that the power system is expected to, and I'm quoting them here, come under a certain strain as homeowners and businesses crank up the air conditioning units. So what's going to happen? Peak load for electricity is projected to exceed 48,000 megawatts on Labor Day. Now, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I know what that means. I really don't. I'm thanking our friends at the San Diego Union Tribune 
for posting this memo. Uh, what does that mean? I mean? And if you do know what it means, call in during the call-in segment and, and help us understand greater and greater detail what this means. But 48,000 megawatts of electricity is the projected usage for Labor Day. That will be known, uh, that will be right now, the highest amount of megawatts used in the state to date. There was a, what they call a heat bulletin issued late yesterday. Um, in all honesty, you don't need to understand what 48,000 megawatts means necessarily, but please understand that on Tuesday, that uh, if you take the number of megawatt hours that were used yesterday and compare it to the 48,000, that's about a 14% increase. Coastal temperatures are supposed to be in the 80s. Uh, inland temperatures could reach 107. Uh, desert regions all throughout the Golden State make it the brown state, 115, 120. And of course, you know, when you've got the sustained heat and the drought that's still hanging around, um, you've got the risk of wildfires. As a matter of fact, the temperature is going to get really hot in Northern California. I understand they're expecting a high of 70 in San Francisco tomorrow. Okay, it's a little Bay Area humor, right? Everyone knows the city by the bay yay. doesn't get warm at all. Watch a Dodger giant baseball game and, you know, it's in August, right? And everybody's wearing turtlenecks. <laughs> Just, but nonetheless, by the way, the energy consumption is the greatest right during the bottom line show, which I take as a compliment because that means so many people are tuned into the bottom line show that we're just sending the uh, kilowatt grid wattage all the way off the chart. That's not exactly true. But typically between 4 p.m. and 9 p.m. Pacific time, that is when California's grid is under the most pressure. The sun is going down. So if you had any kind of solar system that's, uh, you know, solar panels and things like that, you're not getting maximum usage out of those. But if you have solar panels, you do know that uh, it's not like you, it only works when the sun's shining. <laughs> you could you could store those things pretty well. Otherwise, could you imagine having like a solar water heater and it's first thing in the morning, sun's not up or late in the evening, you want to take a shower and you try to get some hot water. Nope, sorry, there's no sun outside. You can't get any hot water. doesn't work like that. But this is the idea that, you know, we need to conserve power because uh, there have been power outages that have been happening in the Golden State for quite some time. August 14th and 15th of 2020, California had some power outages that lasted up to two and a half hours. Can you believe it? Labor Day weekend, rolling blackouts, et cetera, et cetera. In 2021, the state's grid was pushed to the brink in July of that year. On August 16th, there was hot weather all over the state. There were eight flex alerts for 2021. So the idea here is that there is power needed for the electricity to combat the heat of the holiday weekend. So public service from me to you, I want to encourage you, wherever you are listening to this program right now, if the temperature is unseasonably warm, remember, all the power companies will tell you, if you cool your place to 78 degrees or a little bit hotter, if it's two or three degrees warmer or four or five degrees, I'm telling you, proportionally, you can run that AC at 82, 83 degrees, and it's not going to feel too badly when you step outside into 110. But what's happening with the power grid also puts us squarely in the middle of a huge problem with a growing concern in the United States of America on the whole, in California in particular, and that is... 
I thought we were trying to go greener here. I thought we were trying to get rid of fossil fuels. What happens to the electric cars when we've got these flex alerts and rolling brownouts and things of that nature? I mean, if we're supposed to reduce our electrical consumption, does that mean the cars are part of that same problem as well? Let's take a look at that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Right after you get into an accident, you need to call Stephanie Cover of Cover Law to begin the process of healing. Too many people make the wrong choice and try to handle their case on their own. Don't be gullible. Your insurance company does not have your best interests in mind. Their job is to save money, not help you recover. Stephanie's priority is you. She will help you recover wholly, mind, body, and spirit, as well as get you the settlement you deserve. Begin your recovery by contacting Stephanie first and follow her instructions to streamline your healing process. Stephanie has over 25 years of experience and knows how to get you healed and restored. Although your friends and family may have good intentions, they are not personal injury attorneys, and therefore they do not know the best way to help you. Stephanie Cover does, and she will help you put the pieces back together financially, physically, and spiritually. You need to write down her number now, 877-214-4935, or go to kbrightradio.com slash Law. Your healing begins with Cover Law. It's about healing. It's about restitution. It's about making things right again. It's not necessarily about gouging somebody or taking them to court, but the legal system is not your friend. Stephanie Cover will be your advocate to fight against the system and for you and your well-being. Contact her at 877-214-4935 or go to kbrightradio.com forward slash Cover Law. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. We're taking a look at the electric grid, the power issues and one of the problems that we're running into with the number of people who are getting electric cars now is the demands here in the People's Republic of California, the new law that will go into effect if it hasn't gone into effect already, um, dealing with how many cars are going to be available for purchase that are run on gasoline or diesel. California's laws by 2035, every new car sold in the Golden State would have to run either on an electric charge or on a hydrogen cell, not even an electric gas hybrid. Now, if you still have a car like that, you can still drive that car. There will just be no new models sold. Uh, state governments are going to all electric. It's so interesting. If you ever watched the documentary, Who Killed the Electric Car? Remember when the first, like the Honda Insight and all those funky looking cars came out in the late 80s, early 90s? And you could only lease them. You couldn't buy them. And they were super expensive. And even as recently as 10 years ago, the Chevy Bolt, the Chevy Volt, uh, they, it, you could buy one of those cars for around 40 grand. It actually cost Chevy $80,000 to make them. But all of a sudden, the push now over the past three, four years has been electric car, electric car, electric car. We have to lower the carbon imprint and footprint, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a couple of things have shown up that have become rather inconvenient for people who are pushing the electric car as a way to uh, basically save the planet. First and foremost, you take in, uh, research like by Professor David Dilley. We've got uh, my conversation with him a couple of weeks ago discussing the fact that the model that is being used for the projection as to what's going to happen in the future with regard to CO2 emissions and what's been happening since 1850 appears to be badly flawed. 
the statistics that have been presented about the, the huge increase in temperatures and, and carbon emissions, et cetera, et cetera, that are all being attributed to man-made carbon emissions literally are man-made because they're human beings. If you look at the population of the United States, well, let me do this right now. I'm going to just have Google will search as they say, right? Population of the U.S. in 1850, okay? Population of the United States in 1850, 23 million people. Population of the United States in 2022, 341 million people. Now, if there are more people, there are more people who are taking in oxygen from plants and giving off CO2 that the plants need. So yeah, the CO2 emissions are way up because, well, now there's carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, so the CO and CO2, but nonetheless, there's a lot of carbon going in the air, carbon emissions, et cetera. Remember the people who wanted to, like, they wanted to tax your cow and stuff like that because of the methane fuel? fuel. I mean, uh, the, these levels are much too high. And we're, we're seeing these unusual uh, spikes and surges and, you know, the, all the terms that the left uses to try to scare people. When in reality, what you're seeing is if there are increases in the climate temperature, that's because of natural science situations that happen every 243 years. We're literally on the downward side of one of those. By this time next year, we should see one of the coldest winters in two or three centuries. But the, to attribute all that to man-made carbon emissions as opposed to, you know, whatever. I mean, sure, there's been more industrialization in the United States, of course. But the population's increased dramatically, 15-fold, whatever it is. I mean, from 23 million in 1850 to 341 million today, more people are putting out more CO2, full stop. 10% of the carbon emission increases in the United States over the past 170 plus years are the result of man-made stuff. And the other 90% are just people. That's problem number one for the scientific community. Problem number two for the scientific community, when the president announced shortly after President 46 took office, and that's President Biden, by the way, um, for this, I, I only use the numbers because sometimes you mention names and people don't hear a word you said. You say President Trump, oh my gosh, Trump, I can't stand that guy. It doesn't matter what you're saying. <laughs> Donald Trump, I don't know. Or President Obama, oh, well, there was a problem there. So I just say 44, 45, 46, 43, 42. Any consolation, Richard Nixon was 37. You know, you can fill in the rest of the numbers from there. But when you look at the, uh, you know, where we are in terms of, what President Biden said when he took office, oh, yeah, we're going to have the entire federal fleet, every federal vehicle in the United States and then by 2030 or whatever it is, they're going to be all electric. And that's when the science crowd came in and said, oh, excuse me, sir, pardon me, pardon me, President Biden, I just say, yeah, um, we, we have a bit of an issue here. Yeah, what's that? What's the issue? Well, um, we don't have enough electricity on the grid to handle the electric vehicles. Um, two articles that came out within a month of each other at the fall of last year. Uh, well, three. August 3rd, 2021, New York Times. Electric cars are coming and fast. Is the nation's grid up to it? And analysts generally agree that it is entirely feasible to power many millions of new cars with electricity, but it will take careful planning. That's the New York Times. October 13th, 2021, this is the Washington Post. 
plug-in cars are the future, but the grid isn't ready. By 2030, according to one study, the nation will need to invest as much as $125 billion to upgrade, update rather, the electrical grid so they can handle all the electric vehicles that we'll have. And again, electric vehicles make up, what, 3 4% of the cars on the road. Forbes then comes back a month later and says electricity grids can easily handle electric vehicles. An EV will do somewhere between 2.5 and 4.5 miles per kilowatt hour on average. So let's go in the middle and say it's 3.5 miles. In other words, each car will need that much electricity, and we've got plenty. Reuters EV rollout will require huge investments in strained U.S. power grid. All of which to say the majority, just of those articles that I listed, New York Times, Washington Post, Forbes, and Reuters, three of the four said there's no way we can handle it by 2030. There's no way California, which has more cars than any other state in the union, will be able to support an all-electric or hydrogen grid by 2035. But where we're going to find kind of a dry run, if you will, on the effectiveness of the electrical grid versus the electric cars is this weekend in the Golden State, because here's a flex alert. So ask yourself the question if you drive an electric car. And again, if you choose to drive an electric car, it's the same for me with electric cars as it was for the jab. If you want the jab, get the jab. If you don't want the jab with COVID, don't get it. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Whatever you feel is right to do, you do that. And when it comes to an electric car, absolutely. If you feel that the electric car is the way to go, I have a couple of kids. One is electric, one's got a hybrid. They love that. But what happens when you've got an electric car that needs a charge and all of a sudden Southern California Edison or PG&E or SDG&E are saying, now, wait a minute, we've got a power shortage. And you're like, yeah, but you don't understand. I got to get to work. And they're saying, yeah, but you don't understand. We don't have enough electricity. So now you're going to power your electric car and potentially someone is going to get dialysis. I mean, I, I don't want to play false equivalency here, but these are some real issues that we're going to have to work through. Let's keep doing that on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. Let Wilson Financial Services help you identify proprietary financial strategies for your wealth that work for your life. Let's revisit our one-year CD. Had a client who had $500,000 of retained earnings in his corporation for the last three years. I said, if you'd have put that into this account three years ago, you'd have seventy-five dollars to $100,000 of interest versus what you have now, which is a nice round number. Had a client sell his house, had $450,000 in the bank. I told him, is he really not likely to buy a house in the next 12 months? You want to leave this in the bank earning nothing? Or would you like to earn some interest on it over the next 12 months? So he said, how much? I said, well, how about between 20 and 30,000? He says, zero versus 20 or 30,000. Yeah, he says, I like the 20 or 30,000. Sounds better. Aren't you tired of earning nothing with all the money you have in the bank? Call 800-696-9970. 800-696-9970. Or go to kbrightradio.com forward slash Wilson Financial for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. A bit of concern this weekend over the power grid usage and flex power alerts that are coming up and possibly rolling brownouts. But one thing to consider is the fact that the number of electric vehicles on the road right now uh, is only increasing and people are doing what they can to try to lower the dependence on fossil fuels. 
Uh, never mind the fact that electric batteries cost more to replace. There's a story circulating of a guy in Florida who went to get a new battery for his electric car. It was going to cost him $26,000 for the battery, another $1,700 to install it. I mean, the total cost was around 30 grand. You could basically almost buy a brand new car for that. And then they don't recycle well at all. There's a lot of stuff that we're doing in the name of being green and saving electricity that's actually making things worse down the road. But this issue with the power grid is one we're going to have to deal with. If, if this is the solution that is being uh, presented to the American consumer as to how we lower the carbon footprint and uh, find a way to get off of a, an energy source that has proven very effective in the United States over the years, then other sources are going to have to come to, to light. But something to think about, just something to think and pray, just an analysis, balance and clarity segment here on the Bottom Line Show with regard to electric vehicles and power grids and brownouts and rolling blackouts and uh, really taxing the grid. We're, we're anticipating a grid taxing of 14% higher than anything we've seen in the worst of times over the past year. So it's something to think about and keep into uh, take into consideration. Uh, and we'll put this article up for your consideration up at thebottomlineshow.com. As we continue, it's Everyone Wednesday. And so up next, Erica Wickenhorn is an author and a Bible teacher who's going to join me for a conversation about a season of life that I think all of us can relate to. And that's what happens when you're going through a season of disappointment? What happens when you're going through a season of doubt? Many people over the past couple of years have seen some hopes and dreams dashed. Life kind of interrupted for a couple of years and um, it's been a challenge to kind of get back on the beam, as it were. Uh, Erica did an eight-week Bible study with a fascinating story behind it in the book of Ezekiel, of all places. Who, I mean, and I ask this in all sincerity, with the exception of the Valley of Dry Bones around Ezekiel 37 and 38, who jumps into Ezekiel's prophecy and says, this is where I want to spend eight weeks? But when Erica did what God led her to do, it was amazing what she learned during that time. And the uh, end result is a brand new book called An Unexpected Revival, Experiencing God's Goodness Through Disappointment and Doubt. It's an eight-week Bible study in the book of Ezekiel. We have a link to the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. We're giving away a copy of this book today. And if you want to win something, even if you don't win the book, you're going to win something when you call 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. Erica Wiggenhorn has a, a lot to share about this very important topic, and especially if you have gone through a season where it seems like everything that you believed was shaken to the core. Um, every time you turned around, it seemed like a family member or a job or a friend was disappointing you. Uh, you want to hear what Erica has to say about doubt and disappointment in the book of Ezekiel. An unexpected revival with Erica Wiggenhorn coming up next as the bottom line continues. Well, how many people during the past couple of years, maybe the past two, the past five, even the past 10 have said, wow, during that time, I either drew closer to God or I'm falling further away from God. I know a lot of people who are experiencing the fact that they don't feel that close connection to God at all. They, they, things seem to be in a bit of turmoil. Uh, maybe they're even seemingly falling apart. What do you do to get that all back? Well, first of all, you look into the Old Testament and you shake hands with everybody there who's been going through this too for thousands and thousands of years. And then you pick up a resource that I think will be a great benefit to you uh, called An Unexpected Revival, Experiencing God's Goodness Through Disappointment and Doubt. It's an eight-week Bible study of Ezekiel written by Erica Wiggenhorn. And Erica is joining me today here on The Bottom Line Show. Erica, nice to meet you. Welcome to The Bottom Line Show. 
Hi, Roger. It's good to be here. It's nice. To, it's nice to meet you and see you too. For everybody on myhopenow.com, who's getting a chance to watch our Zoom recording here in Erica's ultra hip studio, compared to my rather <laughs> stately studious home studio here. Erica Wiggenhorn is the founder of Every Life Ministries, which brings truth to scripture of the scripture to transforming lives. She teaches in national venues, local venues. A graduate of Azusa Pacific University, uh, lives in Phoenix with her husband Jonathan. They have a couple of children, and we've got a link for her website ericawiggenhorn.com up at the bottomlineshow.com. I'll tell you this before we get started, Erica, I've been doing work with Azusa Pacific and when you call the university and you get the message on hold, that's me. As a matter of fact, I literally just this morning oh, fin finished yay. updating the fall thing. So go Cougars. Yeah, way to go. Yes, <laughs> How exciting is that? <laughs> okay, enough of the excitement and the fun pleasantries now. Let's talk Ezekiel. I mean, that let, Stuart Briscoe would say these are usually part of the cleaner pages of the Old Testament for a lot of people. <laughs> and yet, you know, this is a place where we can find this unexpected revival. What was the genesis of this uh, story for you for wanting to make this Bible study? Yeah, great question. So it actually was born out of a very uh, dark season of my life. I'll give you the cliff note version, Roger, but um, essentially, I had fallen into the trap of believing a theology that said, if I check all the boxes and I do everything right, um, you know, I go to church and I am a good Christian girl and mm -hmm. um, I do all those things, God's going to bless me. Mm. And I, I believed that. And so when my life was suddenly falling apart and I felt like I was checking all the boxes, um, I didn't necessarily have a crisis of faith because I didn't come to know the Lord until I was much older. Mm -hmm. And when you live a long portion of your life without God, and then you suddenly have God, um, you know, God is real, uh, but mm -hmm. my theology was wrecked and I sat in Bible study and I remember crying out to God saying, I need a bigger God than this because mm. I felt like um, the theology that I was believing was trying to sell me Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you just right. do all these things, he'll make your life better. Right. And as I cried out to God in that moment and I said, God, does it ever just, does it grieve your heart? that we only want your blessings, but we don't really want you. Mm. And I remember in, as I cried that prayer out to God, I sensed God say to me in the quietness of my heart, study the book of Ezekiel and write down everything that I show you. Now, I don't know about you, Roger, but I don't have a lot of those moments with God <laughs> where he does something really like, woo, out of uh -huh. that super specific to me. So I kind of just brushed it off. Like, yeah. you know, I'm in a broken place. I have a broken heart, um, you know, whatever. But as God often does when he wants to get our attention, he wouldn't let it go. And so it was like everywhere I'm turning, it's like Ezekiel, Ezekiel, to the point that my son throws this whopping temper tantrum in the middle of the grocery store the cart slams into the end cap and a dozen loaves of ezekiel bread <laughs> rain down all over my head right i mean it was like i, I can't it. get away from i love time. it oh my gosh so finally i go home and i was like all right i i've never even read ezekiel to Stuart briscoe's uh mm -hmm. yeah. point mm -hmm. um 
I have never cropped the pages of Ezekiel no. in my Bible. I'm pretty no. sure it would sound something like yeah. that for you to say it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I open it up. Literally says God's heart was grieved because the people of, of Israel only sought his blessings, mm. but they didn't want him. And I was like, okay, I, I did hear it right. And I began studying that book. And it wrecked my faulty theology. Mm -hmm. And it brought me face to face with the most loving God I have ever encountered. Mm. And it brought revival to my life. Wow, that is such a powerful statement from Erica Wiggenhorn today here on The Bottom Line, sharing her personal testimony about what happens when your faith is wrecked because it needs to be wrecked so that God can reform it so you can get closer to him. The book is called An Unexpected Revival, Experiencing God's Goodness Through Disappointment and Doubt. It's an eight-week wandering through the book of Ezekiel. We've got this book up at thebottomlineshow.com. What was it like when you finally got to that point? I mean, I can imagine you know, it's, it's one thing. And we always cry out, you know, God, here I am. You know, this is just me, just as I am without one plea. This is me, you know, lamb of God, I come. And we kind of expect that God and the truest form of our relationship with him knows all, all about us. And what is it? Max Cato says, loves us, you know, the way we are and loves us too much to leave us that way. But mm -hmm. what, what was it like when you began to realize, Hey, wait a minute, I was not worshiping the wrong God per se, but I was putting so many constrictions on, on him and, yeah. and 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 basically saying i want you as long as that when you got to the unconditional god who loves you unconditionally what was that like well it was very freeing for one thing um you know i i think a lot of believers out there uh we live in cycles of guilt and shame mm -hmm. right like um i i'm not a good enough mom um i'm not a loving enough wife i'm not uh, you know, I don't keep my house clean enough, or I never finished that degree and I should have, or, mm. you know, we're constantly um, beating ourselves up for all the things that we should be doing, right? right. Um, I love it when my friend uh, Jenny Randall, she says, shut the should up, right? Mm. Like, it's <laughs> like, you know, we just stop with all the shoulds. And yeah. for me, that was a big part of the the revival was yeah. God's not disappointed with me. He's not disgusted with me. Um, he's not looking down at me and going, you know, when is this girl going to get her act together? Right. But that's how I felt. And that was my view of God, Roger. And what God finally opened my eyes and helped me understand in this weird, wild book that feels like you're in the middle of a science fiction movie mm -hmm. is that we have a father who desires intimacy with us. He wants us to come with all of those feelings of, I'm not a good Christian. I'm not this. I'm not that. Um, he wants to be the person that we come to with those things, not the person that we run away from because we feel those things. And I would be so bold to say, Roger, that apart from the gospel where, you know, the four gospels where Jesus comes and clothes himself in human flesh and is crucified and tortured and died for our sins. Apart from that, uh, I don't think there is another section of scripture that so poignantly 
displays God's love for his people as mm -hmm. the book of Ezekiel. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm taking it, Erica Wiggenhorn, that you didn't have uh, any bones lying around in the backyard, you know, that start coming back to life or anything like that as part of the revival. Of the no, book. but that would have been really cool. Yeah, it would have. It would have. What a great chapter nine. <laughs> The bones come to life. I mean, that would really... I mean, I would have so had my iPhone out for that footage. I'm just <laughs> yes, saying. Like, absolutely. That would have been the first thing on Instagram that day. Exactly. Exactly. Look, look at this TikTok channel. This woman, have you seen what's going on in her backyard? This is amazing. Um, Erica Wiggenhorn, the book is called An Unexpected Revival, Experiencing God's Goodness Through Disappointment and Doubt. It's an eight-week Bible study in the book of Ezekiel. We have a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. I'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll get into some of the nuts and bolts about the Ezekiel story, why it was so germane to Erica's story, and then what revival looks like in terms of us reaching the world for Christ, which these days, I think there's more of an urgency and more of a compulsion than we've ever seen in well, at least in the last 60 years or so that I've been walking the earth. More of my conversation with Erica Wiggenhorn in just a moment as the bottom line continues. Erica Wiggenhorn is my guest today here on The Bottom Line. I'm Roger Marsh. Her book is called An Unexpected Revival, Experiencing God's Goodness Through Disappointment and Doubt. It's an eight-week journey through the book of Ezekiel, uh, which is not necessarily the kind of book that we, uh, let's be honest, right? When was the last time you did a Bible study on Ezekiel? I mean, let's just be real. I mean, some churches are really diligent, um, but if it weren't for the supernatural voice of God and 12 loaves of bread in a supermarket, Erica Wiggenhorn wouldn't have done it either, right? And that Ezekiel bread is really good. I'm just that visual. That would have looked good on Instagram or TikTok <laughs> or YouTube too. Woman gets clobbered with Ezekiel bread, does Bible study book on Ezekiel. Um, let's talk about this, though, because there is a theme. I mean, there's a reason, obviously, God led you to the book of Ezekiel for this, especially with what your life was going through. What, what is there a recurring theme that our listeners will pick up on right away that makes, sets Ezekiel apart for this type of season? Yeah, well, there's actually a phrase that is repeated. God repeats 50, that's 5-0, Roger, Roger mm. that, 5-0 <laughs> times in the book of Ezekiel. And it is, then you will know that mm. I am the Lord. Mm -hmm. And the first time I read through the book of Ezekiel, I heard that in my mama of teenagers voice, like, you better get your room cleaned up or then you're going to know who your mama <laughs> is, right? Like that's uh -huh. the tone that I, that I read it in. And I realized after diving more deeply into the book that I was missing God's heartbeat entirely reading uh -huh. it that way. Mm -hmm. um, that word no is the Hebrew word yada, which is like a husband knowing his wife on their wedding night, mm -hmm. nothing mm -hmm. hidden between them, complete and total oneness. And that was what God was after with his people. And that was the whole purpose of God sending his Holy Spirit was to bring that oneness with him that we now can experience as New Testament believers. But he said, then you will know that word yada, then you will know that I am the Lord, all in capitals, which is his name, Yahweh, his highest name. And that name means the God who creates and enters relationship. Mm. So God is basically saying to his people, Everything that is happening in your life right now is for the purpose 
of drawing you in and drawing you closer to me, of knitting our hearts together into this picture of oneness. Mm -hmm. And I think as believers, if we can begin to look at our circumstances and say, God, how are you going to use this to draw me closer to you, to my place of ultimate safety and security? Uh, That can really give us... um, a different perspective when life is disappointing, uh, when life isn't going the way that we wanted, when you feel like you're checking all the boxes, like I talked Mm -hmm. about, and God doesn't seem to be delivering. Why is God silent? Why is he not answering my prayers? Um, I think we all live in that in-between space of the way we want life to be and the way it actually is, right? Mm -hmm. Because this world's not our home. And so we're going to experience disappointment here. Um, But 50 times God says that. So I think he really wants us to get it. And for someone like me, I need it 50 times, Roger. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's funny, as you were sharing that, I was thinking about a big Michael Card fan and actually had Mike on the show a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about one of his books because he's not writing songs anymore, which made me very sad because I loved his songs because they were teaching songs. I mean, they were, there was always something in there about whether it's teaching, you know, the basics of the gospel or whatever. He did a survey, if you will, of the Old Testament in an album form, because who doesn't do that or who didn't do that in 1989? And that's the Ezekiel song, the book, when he looks at the book of Ezekiel, Mm -hmm. the song is called, Then They Will Know. And he just goes through and pulls all these different places where God said, then they will know that I'm father, I'm savior, I'm healer, I'm 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 friend. Where were you, Roger, with this information (laughs) when I was writing this study? Where were you, man? Uh, Well, where was I? Uh, Maybe I was having my own cry. I was working for Azusa, doing all those tags and things like that. Um, I'll send you a copy of the record. But uh, I actually I want to send Mike a copy of this book, too, because I think you'll get a kick out of the fact that you're connecting, you know, those dots that way. And Erica Wiggenhorn is my guest today here on The Bottom Line, an unexpected revival, experiencing God's goodness through disappointment and doubt. It's an eight week Bible study in Ezekiel that will truly help you. Now, I'm encouraged by the fact, Erica, just not going to lie that this is an eight week study, because I know having been on the receiving end of the you know, we're coming on Wednesday night and we got this Bible study through Habakkuk or something like that. And next thing you know, by week three, people are busy, you know, or they're not there. It would seem that the momentum kind of builds all the way through here. What's the, what's the week that people are saying, okay, this was the turnaround point for me. This was the climax. This was the, uh, the, the ultimate experience that really got my attention of the eight weeks. Which one do you think is the, is having the biggest impact on people? Well, it's past week three, Roger. So okay. <laughs> I'd have to come for at least week four or five is what there you're you saying. Go. Uh, fine, no, hands- fine. Okay. <laughs> hands down, uh, the feedback that I'm getting from the readers that have gone through the study is week eight was just a huge turning point for them. And Ezekiel is really scripture's first mention, the prophetic mention of God talking about pouring out his spirit in this new and fresh way, which for us as believers is the Holy Spirit. Uh, And so in week eight, we take like we put the Holy Spirit under a magnifying glass and we look at all that Jesus taught his disciples about the Holy Spirit before he went to the cross and then between his resurrection and ascension. Uh, And then we look at what Paul taught about the Holy Spirit and that the title for that week of the study is Revival Now, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and how God longs to bring revival to our own lives through the Holy Spirit. And I, I think it's really resonating with people because I have found that for most of us, our understanding of the Holy Spirit has come a lot more from our denominational traditions yes, than yes. from an actual dive into doctrine and the scriptures and mm-hmm. what Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit. And so people are just sensing this coming alive because they're finally understanding how to engage with this third member of the Trinity. And it's just beautiful and exciting. One of the things that you have written about as your study of Ezekiel unfolds is the fact that when you started this journey, you were going through, you know, basically your faith had been wrecked, if you will, not necessarily deconstructed, but the way you understood faith in Christ was being kind of torn apart. Sometimes when people get to that part of their journey, then it's, it, it almost becomes a walkaway moment for them where they realize, oh, well, shoot, if this is what I, I thought the relationship with God meant, I got everything I wanted. If there's anything from, if I have any skin in this game, forget it. Uh, talk about how we really don't fully understand who we are in Christ. I mean, our purpose in Christ until we do have that moment, uh, I guess, Isaiah 8, where you, where you stumble at the, at the foot of the cross, literally, wow. and realize that the only way to have this relationship is for a you to be broken and b for god to put you back together again yeah well it's the dry bones right mm-hmm. uh you can't revive Re- revive is to make alive again right you can't revive somebody who already thinks they're alive and has life all figured out right yes, it's yes. the person lying on the floor crying out god i need you mm-hmm. um and so there's a humility that happens in revival. There's this, there's a a moment that we have to sit before God and we have to say, I'm broken and I can't put myself back together. Mm -hmm. Um, No amount of knowledge. Um, Google is not going to give me the answer to this one, right? I need God. I need God. And, um, you know, so I think revival, a lot of people, uh, you know, they're like, well, when I think of revival, you know, I think of like the big tent or maybe like the Gaithers or, you know, something like that. (laughs) And I don't think when I dive through the book of Ezekiel, Roger, I don't see revival happening that way. I think revival looks like this. I think revival looks like the woman in her kitchen with the kids all around her and she's weary and she's exhausted and she's trying to be a good mom and she's trying to teach her kids about God. And she's wondering if, you know, what she's doing day after day is even making the tiniest bit of difference. Mm -hmm. And she feels invisible and she feels just completely at the end of her rope and she's crying out to God and she's saying, God, help me, Mm -hmm. help me raise these kids well I think it's the man who uh or woman who gets up every day and they go in their cubicle and they have that same besetting sin that same habit they can't seem to break they can't seem to get past they feel like they're swallowed in defeat over and over they don't want to be the person that they've become in fact maybe they don't even know how they got there and they're crying out to God change me Um, You know, I think it's the student on the campus and they have big dreams and they want to make the world a better place and they want to do something significant and meaningful with their lives. 
and they don't even know what that looks like. And it feels just so out there and daunting. And they're just standing before God with their hands open, their hearts open, and they're saying, God, use me. Um, I think that is what revival looks like. Mm. And I think God is looking for people like that to come alive in their hearts, um, to spark a fire through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as God changes them through this deep, intimate, abiding relationship that he so longs to have, that fire is going to grow and it's going to ignite embers within the hearts of people around them. And that is how revival is going to start by just saying, God, here I am. Help Mm. me, change me, use me. Mm. Powerful images from Erica Wiggenhorn today here on The Bottom Line, and what a great resource to use, especially with the fall kicking in and most churches back in full swing. If you're looking for a Bible study, I highly recommend uh, this book by Erica Wiggenhorn. It's called An Unexpected Revival, uh, Experiencing God's Goodness Through Disappointment and Doubt. It's an eight-week Bible study in Ezekiel, and we've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. Erica, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, for putting this book together and giving us an opportunity to hear from your heart what God said to you, but he kept saying, go to Ezekiel, go to Ezekiel and write it down, and and you couldn't understand why. I'm glad you were obedient to that call, and uh, we've benefited from it today here on The Bottom Line Show. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Roger. Great conversation, great resource. Can't recommend it enough. Erica Wiggenhorn. The uh, book is called An Unexpected Revival, Experiencing God's Goodness Through Disappointment and Doubt. It's an eight-week Bible study in Ezekiel. We've got a link for the book up at thebottomlineshow.com. And we have a copy of the book to give away right now, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278. That's the number to get you through to the bottom line. And I guess I should say we have multiple prizes to give away. It's everyone Wednesday here on the Bottom Line Show. Everyone wins something. So even though we only have one copy of Erica's book to give away, I highly recommend that you uh, actually call in because you're going to win something. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278. 800 That's the number to get you through to the bottom line. I appreciate Erica's insights on this, and I have a great time here on the Bottom Line Show, make no bones about it, uh, with the fact that God has brought so many wonderfully gifted Bible teachers and apologists and theologians to the table here. I'm very grateful for the men who I've sat under for their Bible teaching and uh, pastoral ministry for many, many years, and I'm also grateful for the ladies as well. I mean, there's a growing number of women whether it be Natasha Crane or Alicia Childers, uh, Mary Jo Sharp, the list goes on. And now Erica Wiggenhorn adds to that uh, that list as well. And, you know, for for me here on the program, I don't really make a distinction. I, I want good, God-honoring, biblically-based, solid, you know, guests. And, and one of the things that people comment on, probably one of the most common comments we get here at the Bottom Line Show is, we love the guests. They're interesting. They're well-informed. There's a good conversation. And, and I, I'm grateful. You know, we, we work really hard to vet and screen our guests and make sure that they provide the right leadership. And, uh, you know, there have been, on occasion, there have been some folks that we've uh, had conversation with that said, yeah, let's do an interview. We record an interview in advance and then realize, hey, that's not going to work <laughs> for the show. So we might put it up on our SoundCloud, but it doesn't wind up making it to air. And that's not an indictment of the person. We just don't think it's going to be a fit for you. But, you know, it's interesting how this conversation about uh, Bible teachers, pastors, things of that nature, and regards to men and women, 
has been changing quite a bit over the years. And I'm not surprised because as uh, millennials and Generation Z take more leadership roles in church, um, they are a lot more egalitarian than their predecessor generations. And I totally get that. But a new survey from LifeWay Research indicates that the divide among whether or not women should have certain pastoral roles, not just senior pastor, but any kind of pastoral title, um, well, it's really kind of denominationally different. 55% of Protestant pastors say that a woman could be senior pastor at their church. But then when you get into denominations, 94% of Methodists say it's okay, 78% of Pentecostal, only 14% of Baptists say that way. Lutheran pastors, 47%, uh, Presbyterian and Reformed pastors, 77%. I mean, it's, it's all over the map. So my question to you is a simple one. Do you believe that it is appropriate for a woman to be a pastor? Whether it be senior pastor or, well, let's make it senior pastor, because I think most of us would concur that there are pastoral roles that women can fill, like children's ministry pastor, women's ministry pastor, that no one would have a problem with. The bigger issue is what about the senior pastor role or like associate pastor? How do you feel about that? Are you at a church right now that has a woman in the senior pastorate or associate pastor role? Lifeway Research says that 55% of all Protestant pastors say that they would have no trouble hiring a woman to be senior pastor at their church. So I'm curious, show of hands, what do you think? 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line show as we're taking calls on Erica Wiggenhorn's great book, Bible study in the book of Ezekiel, An Unexpected Revival. Uh, what do you think about the women in the pulpit role? 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278 is the number to get you through to the bottom line. For our KCBC crowd, Rabbi Schneider and Discovering the Jewish Jesus coming up next. But if you want to cheat a little bit, go to kbrightradio.com. You can stay with us for the call-in segment. That's coming up next as the bottom line continues. Want to continue receiving income into retirement with little market risk? Dennis Wilson and Wilson Financial Services can help you secure a permanent income and benefits addressing your risk tolerance with professional advisory knowledge. You have a large 401k or IRA as your retirement nest egg. How about a four-dimensional plan that will pay you and your spouse income for life without stock market risk? How about we include inflation benefits so your income goes up annually? How about we include extra income benefits for long-term care? And if you need one or both, you both have it. That's right, permanent income inflation benefits, long-term care benefits with no market risk. We have put over $50 million of our clients' money in the 4D account in the last few years. These clients are sleeping way better at night. Learn more when you call Wilson Financial today at 800-696-9970. 800-696-9970. Wilson Financial for simply better alternatives. Welcome back to The Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Everyone Wednesday today here on The Bottom Line. And so uh, if you are calling in for Erica Wiggenhorn's book, An Unexpected Revival, Experiencing God's Goodness Through Disappointment and Doubt, an eight-week Bible study of Ezekiel, uh, we look forward to hearing from you, 800-227-5278. Of course, everyone who calls into the program between now and the last half hour of our broadcast time today is going to win something. And I'm going to throw this out on the table here, too. I don't, I mean, Teresa might not be listening to us. Um, our friends at Wilson Financial Services uh, sent me <laughs> my birthday's tomorrow. 
and they sent me a birthday present. Now, I'm not quite sure why they do this. Um, every year, they send a birthday present for Lisa on her birthday to the house, and they send me a birthday present to the station. And I can't bring this stuff home. So there's some really great brownies in there. When you call Teresa at 800-227-5278, ask her about one of the Wilson Financial Services brownies. They're wrapped up. They're totally safe. you got nothing to worry about, but they're delicious. Okay. Um, Dennis Wilson and his team. If you go to the Wilson Financial offices, you will get brownies everywhere. They've got them all. <laughs> Dennis loves brownies. and uh, Or maybe the staff loves brownies. And they just buy them when he's not paying attention. Anyway, um, give us a call at 800-227-5278. The prize today is Erica Wiggenhorn's book, An Unexpected Revival, the eight-week Bible study in Ezekiel. But everyone who calls is going to win something. So um, who knows? Maybe you'll get a brownie tucked into your package here. Uh, 800-227-5278. Five two seven eight. On the subject of women in leadership and Bible study, I mean, I had a delightful conversation with Erica Wiggenhorn. I've been privileged over the 11 years the Bottom Line Show has been on the air. Um, and I'm not saying that because that we're wrapping up. No, we're just getting warmed up. We want 11 more years at least, Lord willing, to keep having these conversations every weekday afternoon. And sometimes on the weekends, too, if you tune into our weekend releases and on the podcast and on the My Hope Now uh, video and rogermarsh.com, bottomlineshow.com. That's thebottomlineshow.com. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn. Uh, we're on Spotify. I think someone put us on Spotify. I don't know that we made a conscious effort to go on Spotify, but you should be able to find at least the National Crawford Roundtable podcast. Oh, by the way, NCR for tomorrow, we're talking about the... Um, the situation with the Rocky Mountain Vibes baseball team, the independent team. It's kind of, I mean, the uh, Colorado Springs Sky Sox had this stadium for years, and then they kind of moved away, I think, in 2018. 2019, the Rocky Mountain Vibes took over. They're an independent league team. And UC Health in Colorado is sponsoring. They, they named the stadium, go to UC Health Field. And apparently they took issue with the fact that a couple of pro-life groups were sponsoring a faith and family night. And hours before the first pitch was to be thrown that day, the team that usually gets a thousand people, maybe 1200 people coming to the game that had 3,500 tickets sold for a Matt Hammock concert and uh, presentation by these two pro-life groups, UC Health complained. And so the Rocky Mountain Vibes canceled the event literally the day of. Tried to take full responsibility. Oh, this was our decision. But if you get to the bottom line, you could find out who was really behind it. We had a great conversation, just recorded that podcast first thing this morning. And uh, of course, John Rush, my colleague on our sister station, KLZ, had a lot to say about it because he's right there in the thick of it. I'm privileged to be broadcasting on KLDC uh, Monday through Friday from 4 to 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. And then also on KLTT uh, from 2.30 to 3 uh, every Monday through Friday. And so I, I did shared my thoughts on Monday's program here. And uh, that carried throughout the whole network, and uh, we had a nice exchange. But uh, Bob Duco, uh, Neil Boron, John Rush, yours truly, talking about religious discrimination and how far should Christians take a potential boycott of advertisers or a company simply because our rights aren't being met. Bob made some excellent points about the legality side of it. Uh, Neil had some wonderful points about the spiritual side of it. John had the practical part because he's in the thick of it and they're in Colorado. And I just show up to provide, you know, the occasional punchline every now and again. But you really owe it to yourself to check out this week's National Crawford Roundtable podcast. It'll be airing throughout the Crawford Network, uh, the half hour edition starting tomorrow. 
uh, here on the Bottom Line Show, 4 to 4.30 Pacific time. We actually incorporate it into the broadcast. So uh, grateful that we're able to do that. Okay, we're taking a look at, since I, Erica Wiggenhorn was just on with me talking about the book of Ezekiel, I thought it was appropriate when I came across this study from LifeWay Research. They did a survey of Protestant pastors, both denominationally based and non-denominationally based, and asked them, what do you think of this issue of women in the pulpit? Now, the Southern Baptist Convention has been going through this rather publicly for many, many years. There's been a huge debate as to whether or not women should be serving as senior pastors or teaching pastors, associate pastor. In other words, she gets up on Sunday morning and preaches to the congregation of two, 3,000 people, and they sit under her teaching. There are people who would look at God's word and say, it's very clear, the women are to be subject to the men. Paul talks about in Corinthians, how the women are supposed to you know, have their heads covered and their mouths shut. Some people take that to a, a, an extreme that gets to the point where women can't serve in any capacity in church. But then others would say, well, now, wait a minute. I mean, if you look at God's word throughout history, uh, you had prophetesses, you had judges who were women, you had uh, women who, who were early Christ followers who, are, who literally kind of bankrolled the ministry because they had jobs that they were putting money in to support. I mean, women have played a hugely prominent role in the story of Christ and not only the story of Jesus, but also sharing that good news with other people. Is it something that the church has gotten wrong? by saying no women in the pulpit, no women senior pastors. You know, I, I can see both sides of the argument, quite frankly. On the one hand, you look at the literal words of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, and it basically says no women in the pulpit. At the same time, though, you also look at the roles that women have played historically in the pulpit, and or not in the pulpit, but just in leadership, and ask the question, well, maybe the church over the past, you know, 2000 years took that to a literal extreme that wasn't really intended. I can understand where Paul says, you know, Christ is the head of the, uh, uh, the church, the same way the man is the head of the household. And so man has ultimate responsibility for this, but does that mean the woman just doesn't say anything? Just kind of smiles, has no input? Well, of course, the Proverbs are filled with scriptures that talk about, hey, look, you're better to have, you know, a corner of a roof than to be in a home with a quarrelsome wife. But that doesn't mean the wife's contribution isn't as important as the man's. Ultimately, it just means ultimate responsibility lies on his shoulders. And so it's in everyone's best interest collectively if the guy isn't just sitting around waiting for um, the, um, the, the his wife to tell him what to do, but rather actually getting stuff done. So this poll, though, is very interesting. I want to share these numbers with you, and then we'll go to the phones and uh, see what you think. 800-227-5278. On the whole, according to Scott McConnell, who's the executive director of LifeWay Research, um, really just it comes down to a question of biblical interpretation. And 55% of Protestant pastors currently serving in the pulpit say that a woman could be a senior pastor at their church. Now, where it gets interesting is how many, there's a thousand pastors surveyed, by the way, in all 50 states. The question then is, let's look at denominations. Let's look at the non-denominational world. Do you believe a woman could be a senior pastor? In the non-denominational world, 43% of those uh, 
who answered the question said, eh, they were less likely to say a woman could be a senior pastor. 57% said, sure. Now, as you work your way up the poll here, 77% of Presbyterian and Reformed pastors said, sure. 47% of Lutheran pastors said, sure, as well. Now, that is very interesting because Lutheran denominations, having been a part of one for half my life, um, can be very, very conservative or very, very progressive. My hunch is it was the progressive lot of the Lutheran church that said, yes, we think women can and should be pastors. And not just any pastor, we're talking senior pastor. When it comes to the Pentecostal denomination, 78% said yes. Now, here's a number that kind of blew me away. When it comes to the Methodist church, because the Methodist church has really been going through it over traditional values, biblical morals, et cetera, et cetera, especially as it pertains to same-sex, quote-unquote, marriage and the LGBT community. You have a good number of Methodists who are willing to split off from the United Methodist Church and start their own denomination because they believe the UMC has become too liberal. So then should we be surprised that 94% of Methodist pastors surveyed for this survey by LifeWay say that a woman could be senior pastor? And should we also be equally surprised? <laughs> I'm not. Southern Baptist Convention, 14% of Baptist pastors believe that a woman could be senior pastor at their church or any church for that matter. All right, boys and girls, now the question is for you. 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278. 800 is the number to get you through to the bottom line show. What do you think about women in the pulpit, especially as senior pastors? Do you believe that it's something that God would ordain, that God already has, and we just missed it? Or is that kind of politically correct wokeness finding its way into the church? And as a sidebar question, do you attend a church right now where your senior pastor is a woman? 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. We'll go to the phones on the other side of this break as the bottom line continues. 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line show. I'm Roger Marsh. We're talking about women in the pulpit. Would you believe that women should be senior pastors, can be senior pastors? Are you part of a church right now where your senior pastor is a woman? According to a new LifeWay research study, 55% of Protestant pastors say that it's perfectly fine for a woman to be senior pastor at their church. What say you? 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. Uh, let's go to David now in Oxnard, California on K-Bright Radio. David, welcome to the bottom line. Hey, Roger, how are you? Doing Excuse great, me. sir. How are you? I'm, 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 I'm very blessed. I'm above ground. Um, um, we, we've talked before. I don't know if you know, remember me or not, but uh, I am a Seventh-day Adventist. And mm. just to let you know that currently... Uh, my associate pastor at my home church is a woman, and I've been in uh, I've been a member of two Seventh Day Adventist churches. And uh, the last church I was in uh, in the, the Mojave Desert uh, was also had an associate pastor that was a woman. And um, this may sound shocking to some, but I certainly don't believe that women. And this is funny to say because you know, as Seventh Day Adventists, 
uh, Ellen G. White is uh, uh, very much a, a prophetess to a, she's a woman. Um, you know, she has uh, written 25 million words in I don't know how many volumes of books, uh, hundreds. And um, she's, uh, she had spoken to many churches as a pastor, uh, but I certainly don't believe that a woman should be an uh, ordained pastor. That is, uh, if a woman wants to speak uh, at a church, I don't have any problem with it. Uh, like I said, I already have a, an associate pastor at my home church. But to be an ordained pastor of uh, the particular denomination, I would disagree with uh, wholeheartedly, uh, because you you were basically uh, paraphrasing First uh, Corinthians uh, eleven uh, three, and the man is certainly the head of the woman, and is the head of the church. So uh, we shouldn't allow women in the pulpit necessarily to take a, a leadership role over a man. That's all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate your comments, David. They're very well uh, thought out and presented. So thank you so much for weighing in on the conversation today. 800-227-5278, the number to get you through to the bottom line. As I mentioned, the LifeWay uh, research yeah, poll of Protestant pastors, 55% saying a woman could be not only a senior pastor, but a senior pastor at their church. But then when you get into the denominational differences, 14% uh, of Southern Baptists agree with that statement. 94% of Methodists agree with that statement. So what say you? It's a very, very interesting conversation. And again, I, I open the phone lines up to you for this dialogue without any preconceived notion. One of the things I really strive to do here on the Bottom Line Show is to give us a forum to have the conversation and have the dialogue. Um, it would be very easy for me to open up the phones and say, I don't think it's right. What do you think? You know, I mean, or I think it's great. What, what do you think? I really, I mean, there's two choices here, either yes or no. And we're going to look at scripture. We're going to read scripture the way we read it. We're going to, the Holy Spirit is going to speak to us and we're going to see it. I, I, I believe that there's a fairly clear cut response to it, but I'm always interested in hearing what others have to say about an issue like this one. Because, I mean, let's face it, there have been a lot of things that have impacted the church um, in a similar fashion over the years that, you know, sometimes we look at this culturally and look at the cultural lens and say, wow, you know, this is really effective right now and people are coming to faith. And other times it's a question of, well, you know, maybe not. I mean, a, a case in point, uh, think back 50 years ago to the Jesus movement. Chuck Smith, Sr., the uh, pastor out of the, uh, I believe, the Foursquare denomination uh, goes and starts his own Bible study, does it for the hippies and the young guys. He's an older gentleman, you know, Papa Chuck, kind of balding, the Lord bless the, you know, that whole bit. And he encouraged young kids who were surfers and smokers and stoners and whatever to come to church. And what they did was they did, you know, kind of an informal style of a very formalized teaching worship movement. And when you look at what Calvary Chapel has done over the years in terms of leading people to faith, it's amazing how many people have been baptized in the Calvary Chapel system. 50 years later, we look back at this and say, okay, well, at the time, I'm sure there are some people saying, that guy's not a real pastor because he's got long hair. That guy's not a real pastor because he lets those hippies come in. That guy, I don't know that Chuck Smith ever had long hair. I don't know that Chuck Smith ever had hair, you know, <laughs> but 
you look at that then and say, okay, in this moment, God is using this. And then you look back 50 years later and say, well, maybe we thought God was using it, but maybe that was more us. You know, and the question I keep coming back to, I've read this passage in scripture many, many times myself, and I know, you know, what it says. But I have to keep asking the question, but why does God keep bringing to light so many women who are very gifted Bible teachers? Why does God keep bringing, raising them up? Why is the heir apparent to Billy Graham's preaching legacy, not his son Franklin? Franklin's doing a fantastic job with Samaritan's Purse and running the administrative side of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association doing some tremendous work. But when it comes to just straight ahead, flat out preaching, the best preacher in Billy Graham's family of his five children is his daughter, Anne. Take a look at Tony Evans, Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas area. Tony Evans, dynamite. I mean, boy, I'll tell you, Tony's doing a great job. And his son, Jonathan, has been filling in for them during the month of August. And Jonathan has his own way, his own style, and he's really good. But arguably, the best Bible teacher of the four Evans children is Tony's daughter, Priscilla Shire. Now, I've heard her give interviews where she talks about the fact that she's the mom of three boys, I believe. And, you know, her husband is very supportive of her in ministry, and she makes sure that they toe the line in terms of what the biblical order is. But if you were to just look at, what, what's the phrase they use? The goods in terms of who does what. God did not gift her husband to be the Bible teacher and to be the pastor. He's given her many of those same gifts. So again, I ask the question, do you believe that you agree with this percentage of 55% of Protestant pastors who say a woman could be a senior pastor at your church? And, or are you part of a congregation right now where your senior pastor is a woman and you're thinking, hey, this is fantastic. 800-227-5278. 800-227-5278, 800-227-5278. That's the number to get you through to the bottom line. Welcome back to the Bottom Line Show. I'm Roger Marsh. Congratulations to Patricia from Stockton, one of our KCBC listeners. She's the winner of the book by Erica Wiggenhorn, uh, An Unexpected Revival, Experiencing God's Goodness Through Disappointment and Doubt. It's an eight-week Bible study in the book of Ezekiel. And Patricia, congratulations. I hope you enjoy that book. Of course, everyone who's been calling into the program today is winning something because it's Everyone Wednesday. I need some echo on my voice or something, Joel, if you can uh, mess with the effect. Just kidding. Don't, don't do that, Joel. Don't, no, really don't. <laughs> but nonetheless, it is fun. There are some Wednesdays where we have a lot of people calling in, and they all want to win stuff. And so that's why we said, hey, on Wednesday now, that's our Everyone Wednesday. So if you're having a lousy week and you tune into the bottom line show and you say, man, my week has just been really lousy. I would love to win something that would really put a smile on my face. You have my absolute guarantee that when you call 800-227-5278, Teresa will have a prize just for you. I don't know what it is because we have a lot of different prizes that are here. And sometimes I'll say, yeah, like I was saying, hey, if you call in, you want one of the brownies that Dennis Wilson sent me for my birthday. Um, I'm totally fine with that. I will gladly share those with you. Uh, 800-227-5278. Everyone wins. Um, the issue is women in the pulpit and a new Lifeway research study that says 55% of Protestant pastors say that they do not have a problem with a woman being a senior pastor and that she could even take over a senior pastor at their church. What do you think? 
Let's go back to the phones now. JT in Hermosa Beach. JT, welcome to the bottom line. Yeah, I'd like to share something interesting with you, Roger. Okay. Um, Sandra Kennedy is, is outstanding. I don't know if she's a minister, but I've watched her on television. Man, she knows the Bible, especially the rapture. And she's really good out of, you know, Atlanta, where Dr. Michael Youssef and Charles Stanley are. Yeah. And then there's Albita King. Uh, and then you go back and you have Amy Semple McPherson. And right. one of her disciples was actor Anthony Quinn, who knew the Bible. And he came to the Lord again before he passed on. But he said she was the best speaker that I ever knew, bar none. And he worked with her. He'd gone to seminary before he became an actor. I remember watching him talk about that. And then you had... Um, Sister Rosetta Tharp, a great evangelist and, and, and singer that became friends with Elvis Presley and was one of his influences with songs like Up Above My Head. So there have been, um, I never really gave much thought to this. If I, if somebody had seemed to like they knew what they were talking about and they really were a good teacher, I mean, Sandra Kennedy, when I watch her, she's a really good teacher and she's, you know, I mean, I've listened to, um, you know, Chuck Swindoll, I've listened to Dr. David Jeremiah and Tony Evans and others that are great Bible teachers talking about the rapture and everything and so on. So, uh, Greg Laurie, I, I guess that's how I've looked at it. I never really looked at it like that. I'm just being honest with you, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that's very fair, and I appreciate that, JT. Thanks for those. Those are great examples, and you hit on something that I want to kind of wrap up with in the conversation, and that is we have been talking about men and women who are outstanding Bible teachers. And in doing so, as you know, talking about their Bible teaching prowess, we also talk about how those are the people we tend to gravitate toward for the role of senior pastor. And I wonder if maybe what this poll is telling us isn't so much rather whether or not women should be wearing the mantle of senior pastor. But when you think of the senior pastor role or the lead pastor in a church, what does that entail? I mean, I know a lot of senior pastors who are good and effective in administrative roles, they're outstanding when it comes to prayer ministry, small group, all those little niggly details that we do with the church. And when it comes time to preach on Sunday morning, well, let's just say that's not their strong suit. And yet their churches are flourishing and thriving. I was part of a church for a number of years where our senior pastor used to do homilies. He didn't really do full-blown messages. He would take the three passages of scripture that our Lutheran church would go through. And he put, he would write out a homily. He would just read it. It was proper delineation between law and gospel. It was, uh, you start with the gospel message, then the law drives us back to Christ. And then the gospel, you would not leave that church without having heard the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord and savior, that you and I are sinners and we can't free ourselves, but that God desires relationship with us. And so that's why he sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin, not only to pay it off, but also to wipe it clean with his blood and that we can live in that newness of life. It will just believe and receive that that gift of salvation is for us. And he, he had sermons at seven minutes, eight minutes. I mean, they weren't, they weren't anything where he would cock away and say, man, I feel like I've been fed, but he was very faithful to his calling and that church flourished for the 15 years he ran it. So maybe the question is, are we talking senior pastor? Or are we talking lead Bible teacher that everybody flocks to hear? Is it possible that maybe our churches would actually be more effective in fulfilling our God-given call to go into all the world and preach the gospel if we spent less time trying to hire a celebrity Bible teacher who can really pack them in on Sundays and really get lots of clicks and eyeballs online? And maybe, just maybe, we look at that senior head of the church pastor and say, okay, 
if God is very clear in 1 Corinthians 11 that that's to be a man's role, but who says a woman can't be the lead Bible teacher? Well, I know for a fact, having served on church staffs for many, many years, that I am not senior pastor material, but I love to preach and I feel called to preach and I'm happy to fill the pulpit whenever God calls me to do so. I mean, maybe first and foremost, we should kind of get the log out of our eye when it comes to should women do this or men do this or blah, 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 and actually say, God, what do you want? I mean, throughout history, especially in the early church, God is using men and women equally to do all sorts of wonderful things, to raise funds and raise awareness. And when we get to heaven, let's face it, no one's going to care who's male and female. That's not the point. The point is, are you there and are you a child of God and are you living and serving him forever? That's the bottom line. 